Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thank you for coming. I'm sure that we'll have people joining us. Um, we are recording this partially just for the record, but partially um, just so that people who are out of town can watch it later on. So everything you say can and will be used against you. Right? <laughs> That's always my case, so I do have to remember that. Um, thank you for giving me the chance to speak to your class. I hope you'll find this to be something different. I'm down at this end with this setup because there are just a number of, a number of slides and short video clips that I want to use. So I hope you'll find it interesting. Um, why don't we pray to begin? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for all who have come this morning and who will be here for the services later on. We're just asking for your blessing and your guidance. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, this whole issue of our Bible translations, how did we get the Bible in our own language? This is um, it's something that, frankly, I think most people just don't realize what an amazing journey it's been to get it from the original scriptures to what we have today. One of the first challenges was even the arguments over what belongs in scripture and what didn't belong in scripture. If you grew up Roman Catholic, you're familiar with these other books that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in most Protestant Bibles. They call the books the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books, and they are historical writings, but they didn't pass the tests of what they called divine inspiration. And the book that almost didn't make it in was the book of James, partially because its emphasis on faith without works is dead, some people, including Martin Luther, tried to get James tossed out of the, what's called the canon of Scripture because it could be misinterpreted to suggest that we're saved by grace plus works, which is actually a, class, a classic Catholic teaching. The other one that almost made it in but didn't is the first and second Maccabees, which are passages in these apocryphal books. And Jesus, some of Jesus' quotes, a couple of them, actually come from the Maccabees. Now, that doesn't mean that that whole book is legitimate. It just means that those particular items he quoted were legitimate. So they were not unknown books at all, but they never really were considered to be divinely inspired. So the apocryphal books are not really what we're talking about today. They are in some of the Protestant Bibles. They were in the original King James Version in 1611, but they were in a separate section, whereas in the Catholic Bible... They're mixed in with the other books. How many of you, I'm curious, are familiar with those apocryphal books? Okay, Vicki and Mary is. And... One of the reasons why they're in the Catholic Bible and they're not in the Protestant Bibles is because after the Protestant Reformation began, um, the Catholic Church put together something called the Council of Trent, and they had to try to figure out what belongs in Scripture and they decided to include those because those books taught or at least reinforced certain things that the Catholic doctrine taught, such as purgatory, such as prayers for the dead, some of those things. They were in those books or at least implied in those books. Can we have confidence that we have the complete Bible? I think we can because there were just too many inconsistencies in those. They were the writings of men at the time. They were historical books. They were observations of what was going on at the time. 
but they really didn't have the marks of something like the other books that were considered to be divinely inspired. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to just make a passing mention to other things that are not in the Bible. The extra-biblical writings, sometimes they're called the Gnostic Gospels. These are very obscure. Things like the Gospel of Thomas and some of these other books, you can find them online, but if you read them in their totality, you discover there's some really bizarre things in there. And so as a result, they're not considered to be part of what we call the canon of Scripture, the uh, 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. I should mention something else, and that's that realize that the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way we have them today, they're not structured chronologically. They're not in order of time. The Old Testament is grouped by categories. You have the five books of Moses called the Pentateuch, and then you have books of history, and then books of poetry, and then you have the prophetic writings, the major prophets and the minor prophets, as they go from the long ones to the shorter and shorter ones. But they're not in order of time. And you can purchase chronological Bibles. Uh, I've just never seen a particular reason to it. You can just instead use a timeline. I have one up on the wall in my office, and I can see when each of these events happened, uh, rather than having a Bible with a different order than what we are used to. Last thing is that we're not really going to talk about what's called extra-biblical writings, because they also did not pass the test of being divinely inspired, like the Book of Mormon, kind of the Third Testament, uh, which, according to the Mormon faith, corrects any errors and inconsistencies in the Old and the New Testament. Or the writings of, uh, you're familiar with this name, Ellen G. White? Anyone ever heard of her? She's the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. If you go into a town and you'll see, typically on their main street, you'll see what's called the, um, the Christian Science Reading Room. That's the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. Or, yeah, Mary Baker Eddy. These were, she and Ellen White were declared prophetesses. And these are all relative, these are 20th century, most of them. And uh, they claim to be given divine inspiration from God as a supplement to the Old and the New Testament. The problem is, is that when you have something that adds to, now you're undoing. You're creating a problem. Uh, so that's why the Christian science movement and the um, Seventh-day Adventist movement just have some oddities about them. Christian science, by the way, is um, very much what's called uh, Gnostic. They, they question physical reality. Uh, they'll, they'll say Jesus wasn't really human. He was some kind of a spirit. The Jehovah's Witnesses, on the other side of things, by the way, will say that he wasn't really God. The Mormons nuance it, but they don't think that he was really God. He was a God. And when it comes to Bible translations, the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation. It's called the New World Translation. And they've based an entire Christian view on a misinterpretation of a Greek passage in the beginning of John chapter 1. We know it as, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They claim that the original Greek says that there should be an article, the letter A, and it becomes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And that's one of the core foundations of the Jehovah's Witness movement, that Jesus is not God. He's just a very wise man who perhaps was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but wasn't God. 
So I'm just mentioning all of those things because that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> Even though I took 10 minutes to cover it, it's important to have that as a backdrop. So let's talk a little bit about what we've got in terms of the Old and the New Testament manuscripts. This would be an example of, of a manuscript that they would have found. And you notice that there are parts missing around the edges. And so they would find a manuscript that looked like that. And let's say that that had, um, I don't know, let's say it was the book of Genesis. And then they found another manuscript that had these parts but was missing. It had some holes in it in here. Then they found another one that had other parts and was missing in other places. And they have hundreds of them. And they compare them. And then over time, they're able to piece together what the original most likely said. And I think they have a very, very high degree of certainty about it. The challenge is that well, none of these are originals. We have copies of originals, and in reality, we have copies of copies of copies, right? They didn't have Xerox machines that they went and put the thing on, and so they were hand-copied. And the Old Testament, even though those manuscripts are 1,500 or more years older than the New Testament, they actually have a higher degree of accuracy than the New Testament. Is anybody, anyone can think of why that might be? Why would the Old Testament have a higher degree of copying accuracy? Different paper or substrate? Nope. The scribes? The scribes. Those Jewish scribes, their rules for copying was to the point where every page had exactly the same number of characters across and the same number of lines going up and down. So after it was copied, they could compare all of those figures, not just by reading it, but to compare it vertically and horizontally. And then they would have two or three other scribes compare it. And then they would be able to say, okay, this is a good copy. If they discovered the scribe made a mistake or something wasn't clear, it got tossed and they had to redo it. So very, very high reliability in the Old Testament. And I might add, almost all of the debates about translation is New Testament related. Not every single one, but almost all of them. Now, the New Testament manuscripts, they were copied by Catholic monks. Uh, once the church was started by the 4th century, from there up until the early 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church pretty much was the face of Christianity. There was the division in 1054 when the Eastern Wing broke off and it became what's called the Eastern Orthodox Church. The first church split. Uh, and so you have basically Eastern Catholicism and Western Catholicism. But I'll talk about that when I do a class in another month on uh, denominations, how all the different denominational backgrounds came about. But there's another thing that came along in the 4th century when it comes to translation. The Catholic Church decided the official language of Rome is what? Latin. Latin. Not Hebrew, not Greek. And so they produced a translation of the Bible into Latin. It's called the Latin Vulgate, and I'll talk about that in a bit. So the idea is that we don't have the original copies, or sometimes they're called the original autographs. We have copies of copies of copies, and they came in fragments. And so the, it's not like there was a, you know, it's not like there was a, a, a book that they had that said, this is the Old Testament. Everything was all these different fragments and scrolls and partial fragments. 
And then when it comes to the New Testament, they had to piece them together. We did not actually have an original Greek New Testament in one binding until the early 1500s. And I'll be talking about that in just a moment. Now, when it comes to that Old Testament discussion, there's Hebrew. And if you don't realize this, Hebrew is written not from right to left, from left to right, but from right to left. And all these little characters in here are what they call the jots and the tittles. And so that's where the term comes from. Even then, in the King James Version words, it says, not one jot nor tittle shall pass from this word. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what that means, but what it's saying is that everything that it says certainly will be preserved. The question is, how literally do they take that? Um, and that becomes one of the debates. But this would have the same thing. These manuscripts that they would find would have kind of holes in the paper, parchment actually, and then they would find another one that would not have a hole there, and they could piece it together through a process that um, by studying it, they would be able to create, reconstruct with very, very high reliability what the original said. And even where there's debates on whether that did it say this or whether it said this, it doesn't impact a major doctrine. So there's very high reliability on this. Now, there was another translation that came into play, and that was during the Old Testament time. Many of the areas before the Romans took over, the, the, the occupiers of Israel was not Rome, but anybody remember the history? Greece. Greece, the Greeks. And so a lot of those Jews actually would speak four languages. In Jesus' day, it wasn't unusual. They spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, which is something of a Hebrew subset, Hebrew dialect, you might say. They probably spoke Greek, and they probably spoke Latin. Um, it was pretty amazing. Now, when children grow up with that, it's not a big deal. It's only hard for us when we try to learn a language as we're older. But so there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament so that at the time, people in those areas, probably the, the Gentile regions north of Israel, they wanted the Old Testament. They had it available to them in Greek. It was called the Septuagint. That was the name of the translation. And there are times when Jesus in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, and people can look at it and say, okay, here he's quoting from Isaiah, but it isn't exactly the same as what we see in our Old Testament for Isaiah. It's because Jesus is most likely actually quoting the Septuagint, the Greek translation. It's the same substantively, but it isn't identical words. It says the same thing. Does that make some sense? And I don't know if you've ever noticed that when it, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. If you look back to the Old Testament, it's not exactly identical. And you wonder, why is that? That's probably the biggest reason why, a translation issue. Jesus is quoting a translation of a translation when he does that. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, we have um, basically families of manuscripts. And so we're going to talk about this for a minute here. With the New Testament, remember, it's the same sort of thing. You've got all these fragments in which you have a portion of, say, the book of Matthew here, and then in this one you've got another portion, and they have 2,000 manuscripts of the book of Matthew. And they piece them together 
to very reliably determine what did the original say, because we don't have any of the originals. We have copies of copies of copies of copies. And they come from basically two families, what's called the Byzantine family, which is the majority of what we have. But they're only back to the 5th century. Most of them are to the 8th or the 9th century. So they're much newer, which means they're further in time from the originals. They've been subject to more copies. But they were written in the geog geographical region of where the New Testament events happened. And this was the basis of the, the English translations that happened early in the Protestant Reformation. Geneva Bible, King James Version, they are the basis of the new King James Version today, and one other, the modern English Version. But then there's this other line of manuscripts that almost all of the modern Bible translations come from the Alexandrian family of manuscripts. There are far fewer of them, but they are much closer to the original date. And so the question becomes, what's more reliable, the ones that are closer to the original date or the ones that are closer to the original location? That's one of the big debates amongst Bible translators. So, so far, are you with me? Okay, does it make sense? But you've got that Latin Vulgate that came in, too. In about the 4th century, a guy named Jerome puts together the Bible in Latin. So he translates the Old Testament and the New Testament into Latin. And by the way, the Vulgate, they call it that. What it means is it says, it's written in the vulgar tongue. And we use the word vulgar to mean gross, maybe even obscene. What it actually meant back then was just the common language. The common language of the way people spoke. When the English translations came out, including the famous King James translation, it was called in the vulgar tongue. We just don't use the word vulgar that way today. Which is, by the way, another factor in translation. Languages change over time. And that's one of the challenges with translation. There are many passages in, say, the King James Version that are what are sometimes called false friends. People say, well, I know what that word means. And it turns out, actually, no, we don't. It used to mean this, but now it means this. So there are certain things which we do have to be careful with older English translations. With all of these things, I, you know I still have something of a preference for the King James Version, but I'll explain to you why I am not a King James onlyist. The challenge that happened is this. The Latin Vulgate, as I understand it, was not a bad translation at all, but there were certain things that probably were created by the nature of Latin itself. And, for example, there are passages in there in which it is referring to the devil, and the Latin term was Lucifer. Lucifer, which, when it gets translated into English, gets a capital letter L, and it becomes a proper name, Lucifer. Okay? There is a debate about whether or not that should be the proper name. But in, when it goes into English, it became a proper name. Just like in Greek, the Latin in the New Testament, when it's referring to Satan, it actually says Satan, a Satan, which simply meant adversary. But it got translated into English with a capital S, and it became a proper name, Satan. It's not that it's referring to the wrong thing, but if somebody says, is that technically his name? It's a fair question. There's an even bigger question 
and that's regarding the use of the name Jehovah. You familiar with this one? In the Old Testament, there were four letters that they used because when you translated the Old Testament into Latin, many of those things, when they would come to English, they had to put in the consonant, the, the vowels, because they weren't there in some Latin letters. And so when they brought it over into English from Latin, you ended up with the letters Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, one of the you know, Old Testament names, one of the Hebrew names for God. But when you translated it into Latin, it became Yehovah, except Latin doesn't have a sound for the letter J when they bring it into English. And that's why that famous hymn, Guide Me Now, O Great Jehovah, the Church of England has a variation on it. They changed the title in the first set of words. Guide Me Now, O Great Redeemer. Same melody, same harmony, because the Church of England says, and they're technically right, that God's name may very well not be Jehovah, because that is an anglicized version of a Latin translation of a combination of letters in Hebrew that didn't sound like what they were written as. Okay? Are these differences a big deal? I would say no. We're talking about the creator of the universe. The Bible load, is loaded with names for him by which he refers to himself. It's just that sometimes we complicate it because language is complicated. It even became a factor in, uh, by the year 1200. <laughs> Nobody spoke Latin anymore. But the Catholic Church said, essentially, too bad, this is the only acceptable Bible. Deal with it. And they would say to the priests, but Father, we don't understand what it says. And he was taught to basically say, that's what you got us for. And if you grew up Roman Catholic, I do not mean to be harsh. We do owe a great debt of gratitude to the Catholic Church for preserving many very important doctrines when they were under attack, like the fact that Jesus was truly God and truly man, like the concept of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The early Catholic Church stood very firm on those things, and we're, we should be properly grateful. But these are some of the things that happened, and it kind of hit a, hit a, a, a moment of a separation in the early 1500s. Because for about 50 years before that, in Europe, something was going on called the Enlightenment. You probably are familiar with that. And they began to want to look at original languages. And along comes this rather obscure German Catholic monk named Martin Luther, one of my favorites. And we always hear the story about him getting so upset about the indulgences and, um, and him nailing on the list of the door of the Catholic, Catholic Church there in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, his list of complaints. But one of the other things is that he got looking into the original languages and he discovered something, that in the Latin, it says the way that you are saved is that you do all of these things and you will become righteous because it had a, uh, a Latin term, justificare, which means you become righteous. But he looked at the original language, at the Greek, and the Greek said dikeahu, which means you will be declared righteous. That's not the same thing as become righteous. And Luther was a tortured soul to the point where, I mean, he was just, he was terrified that somehow or another he wasn't saved because he knew he did all the things that he had been taught to do and he knew he still wasn't righteous. 
So this was a huge moment. There was another one that became obvious because in the Latin version, it suggests that the way that you're forgiven of sin is that you, quote, do penance. Do penance. Whereas the Greek, it says repentance. Not the same thing. Do penance means something that you have to complete yourself, and through that, God's grace is then applied to you. Whereas repentance is something that we can argue about whether you can truly repent unless the Holy Spirit moves upon you first. I personally agree with that statement. But it isn't about what we do. It's about claiming and trusting in what Christ already did. And that's one of the key differences between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant view. The Catholic view is that sin is so powerful, grace wears off, and it needs to be constantly renewed. The Protestant view is what Christ did is full and complete payment. It's applied to you in full the moment you first believe. Basically what it is is that the Catholic faith has justification moved up to the point of death, whereas the Protestant faith has justification at the moment you first believe. And I'll talk more about these differences in a month when I come back to talk about the history of the denominations. So with all of this, so far, how many of you are still with me? You hanging out okay? This is some pretty, pretty deep stuff. Anything I've said that surprised you so far? Just for, yes? Now that's a big difference. We always have to remind each other of that. You know, within Protestant Christianity, you do have two wings. It's called the Arminian wing and the more Reformed wing. The Reformed wing says, once saved, always saved. The problem is that can be misused terribly. There are people who say, yeah, I can do anything I want. I'm saved. I'm one of the elect. And that's a terribly misused understanding. And just like on the other side, you're so afraid that God is basically sitting there watching and he's got his hand on the button to hit eject the minute you screw up. And that really isn't true either. Um, I've talked about that before. I found that that's one that theologians enjoy discussing more than just everyday people. Uh, it's a bit of a black hole. Both factors are at work. God is sovereign over all things, and yet we must answer his call. He enables us to answer his call, but we still must do it. So is it God's choice or our choice? The answer is yes. And I think that's the answer I gave when I came as a candidate two years ago on that March evening right in this room. So let's go on to now we're going to talk about the Greek text. There was not a complete Greek New Testament at all. They had manuscripts but there wasn't anything published in one spot. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass this around to you and just let you look at it. This is my Greek New Testament, just so you can take a look. Like Greek to me. I was going to say, there you go. <laughs> Who's going to be the first one to say it looks like Greek to me? <laughs> now, if you're wondering which set of Greek manuscripts is that from, it's from uh, the Alexandrian text, the one that the modern Bibles use. How different is it from the Byzantine texts? Oh, about 5% different. No major doctrines are impacted by it, but there are some minor differences. Um, so can you read this? 
Um, I can read passages if I practice them. The problem is, is that I can read the passage, but I would have to really strain my brain, and I would need a little help to determine what it means. Okay? At the time that Luther was starting to look at the original language, he had a problem. His bosses, the Pope and the Catholic hierarchy, says, uh, you can't do that. You can't look at the Greek. And he said, why not? And they said, because we said so. <laughs> Basically. Okay? But along comes a Catholic scholar, a man named Erasmus. And, you know, this is right in that same time frame that Luther is starting to rattle the boat there in the early 1500s. And Erasmus gets permission from the Catholic Church to piece together a complete Greek New Testament. But the problem is, is that he only had a handful of manuscripts. Uh, I believe it's five or six of them. And he actually had to take the Latin and translate from the Latin to fill in verses that he couldn't find in some of the Greek manuscripts. The last uh, several verses of the last chapter of Revelation were back translated from Latin because he didn't have them in any Greek manuscripts at the time. He worked under the presumption that he says, well, they didn't make it up, so they got it from somewhere. So therefore, since this is accepted as standard, I'll, just, I'll take their word for it and I'll translate it and we'll put it into Greek. So he produces the first Greek New Testament and revised it a couple of times before he died, before 50, 1536. They call it the Textus Receptus, sometimes the TR, because he said this is the text that has been received, so the Latin term Textus Receptus. And this is from that Byzantine line of manuscripts that I showed a while ago. Today, we have far more of them, but the oldest ones are the 5th century, and most of them are the 8th or the 9th century. They're from closer to the location where the New Testament was written, but they're nowhere near as close to the time as these others. Okay? So Erasmus puts this together, and then in the years that followed, other scholars, a guy named Theodore Beza, um, a historian, Stephanus, worked on these and continued to revise them and basically tweak them based on the latest manuscripts that they would find that had minor differences. Sometimes it was spelling differences. Um, I would give you an example of this. An English example would be the following. If you look at one of the old English translations, whether it be the King James or the Geneva Bible or some of those, in the New Testament they often spell Savior with a U. British spelling, right? Um, it isn't referring to a different savior. But there are King James absolutists that would say, yes, it is. And when they see savior spelled without a U, they say, that's a false god. So, now I completely disagree, but that's how protective sometimes people can be of a, of a preferred translation. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a, uh, well, here was the next guy, Theodore Beza. And this, it was his Textus Receptus that formed one of the key bases for when the King James translators went to work in the early 1600s. Now, I'm going to give you a chart here that has a little more detail. So take one and pass it around. This shows you kind of the continuum of Bible translations today. When you're translating from one language to another, 
If you go word for word directly, it's what they call an interlinear. But if you use software to do that, and you looked at it in English, it would make no sense at all. Because the word order is different, and the grammar is different. Uh, if you ever took Spanish, for example, in school, you would discover that right away. And there are other challenges with wording. And so there's a translation that's more formal, meaning it's more word for word. And there are others that are more dynamic, meaning thought for thought. So I'll give you a comparison. Um, by the way, notice here the King James Version is closer to the middle than people think. It isn't quite as word for word as the New American Standard. The New American Standard is kind of a favorite of a number of people. It is more literal, but as a result, it's more wooden sounding. When the King James translators went to work, one of the things that they did is they wanted to get it to flow better. And so you end up with figures of speech. Uh, Paul has a number of these. One of the most famous ones where is he will refer to, he'll say, so, essentially, he's saying, so, since you're saved by grace, does that mean you should just sit away? And then he says, God forbid. But other translations say, may it never be so. Is one right and the other one wrong? No, one's a figure of speech. Other passages where it says some people are going to be, will make it to heaven by the skin of their teeth. If somebody didn't know that phrase, they would say, what, what? teeth don't have skin. But the meaning is translated. So even back then, even 400 years ago, the translators in the early English translations used certain phrases or figures of speech because it communicated meaning. And the question becomes, what's more important, to understand the meaning or every single word and subword? Um, that's a debate in this. That's why I use usually three different translations. I tend to go back to the King James mostly just out of habit, I admit that, but I like its poetic beauty. But there are points that I read passages and I say, what? <laughs> and then I'll read it again and I'll still say, huh? And then something like the New Living Translation is very helpful. I wouldn't use it as a primary Bible, but it's a very helpful companion. The new international version seeks to blend the two using a mixture of the techniques. But the more you get over here, the more you might understand, but you'll lose a few details. The more you get over here, you get every detail, but you don't always understand. Because this is the nature of translation. And when people say, I want a word for word translation, I want to say to them, no, you don't. Because it wouldn't make any sense at all. Understand something, too, if you've ever studied another language. English is kind of the backwards one. The others are, are much more logical in their structure. English just has all kinds of unusual things about it. It's certainly our language, but nonetheless, it has its oddities. So that gives you an idea of the, the, the forum or the continuum of translations. Now, there were... The early translations used that Textus Receptus line for the New Testament. And remember, most of the debates about translation are about the New Testament. On the Old Testament, the disagreements are pretty minor. But all the modern translations come from that critical text, that Alexandrian text. There, oops, there it is. In which there are fewer of them, 
but they are closer to the time in which they were written. The people who argue against it will say they traveled that distance, and during that distance they were subject to corruption. They were subject to people who made unscrupulous copying errors, and they'll even say, Alexandria, that's in Egypt, that was a pagan area. You know, we can't trust anything that came from there. Their trust is in the Byzantine line of manuscripts. My feeling is, that's fine. The differences are nowhere near what they're made out to be. But what's interesting is that those people tend to be the King James people, but they have a unique disdain for the new King James that's even greater than they do for the NIV or a modern translation. So I don't really believe them when they say it's all about the line of text. And I say, if that was the case, what's your problem with the new King James? Or the modern English version. No one knows about that one, but that's a modern English translation based on the old line of text. So that's the Bible translation continuum. But the first English translation was actually about 150 years before that. A guy named John Wycliffe, as in the Wycliffe Bible translators, of which we support one of their employees today. Um, he put this together, and back then in England, this is before the Church of England was formed. So the Church of England is still Catholic. And he goes to put one together in English, and the Catholic Church says, uh, you can't do that. So <laughs> that wasn't allowed. And just to send a message to give you an idea, have you ever heard of this one? He died. 43 years later, they dug up his bones and burned his bones just to make a point that you're not allowed to translate the Bible into English. Yeah. So you're scared of <laughs> well, I think it was control. They wanted it to be Latin, and since no one spoke Latin, that was control. They said, no problem, that's why you got us. Now, it sounds like I'm being very harsh on the Catholic hierarchy at the time. I've given proper gratefulness to the Catholic Church for years, and proper gratefulness for many things today on which we would very broadly agree with them, including sanctity of human life and those sorts of things. But these are documented things in history. Um, if you went and talked to the, the priest over at Our Lady of the Snows today, I'm sure that he would really weep over some of the atrocities that the Catholic Church did back then. Yeah, Del. Just trying to think of their motivation, I mean, possibly, maybe they had so much zeal to, to make things that were accurate and consistent that they went overboard with that. So that would be, trust. the more sincere individuals, yes, I'm sure that would have been the case. That's the same thing with the King James people today, isn't it? So much zeal for what they believe is accurate and reliable that sometimes they employ some methods that anybody looking at it objectively would say that's totally unfair. Okay. But a lot of it was control, too. The next one that comes along is a little later, another name not unfamiliar at all, William Tyndale. It's another Bible society still today. And then a couple less known. By the way, when Tyndale came out with his English Bible, this is all still, well, by then they had early versions of the Textus Receptus. When uh, Wycliffe did his, he was translating from Latin. Okay. But Tyndale comes along, and I believe the figure is 76% of Tyndale's Bible is identical to the King James, which didn't come along for another 50 years. That's pretty impressive. How much? About 75%. But then there were a few more obscure English Bibles in England. 
Miles Coverdale, the Coverdale Bible, uh, a guy named uh, John Rogers put together what's called the Matthew Bible. They had to smuggle the Bibles into England because it still wasn't allowed. England was still Catholic until Henry VIII comes along, right? And Henry VIII has two problems with the Catholic Church. He doesn't want the Pope telling him what to do, and he wants an easier path to divorce. So the Church of England basically was very Roman Catholic with those two exceptions. And over time, the Church of England became more and more what we would call Protestant. But originally, the term actually was Anglo-Catholic, that they were an English version of the Catholic faith. Is that where Anglican comes from? Anglican comes from. They were the Anglican Church. They still are. They replaced the, the Pope with the king, except the king needed somebody to kind of make decisions and be the advisor on theological matters, so they created sort of a miniature pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which still exists today. When you watched, um, when you watched uh, the coronation of King Charles and you watched the funeral of Queen Elizabeth or you watched the wedding of William and Kate or the wedding of Charles and Diana years ago or you know, anything else, the officiant at that was the Archbishop of Canterbury. There were a couple of other Bibles that came along there during that time. It was called the Great Bible. They called it that because this thing was huge. It was probably, you know, like this. And they wanted one for every Anglican church. And they would put it, you know, up on the, the reading location up there. And so that was called the Great Bible. These were different translations. The Geneva Bible, this is a modern printing of it. They call it Patriot's Edition. Came out in 1599 in Geneva. Uh, was later translated to English. The thing with the Geneva Bible is uh, it was a favorite of the early American settlers. They did not like the King James Version because the King James Version's wording was a little more friendly to the monarchy. That's also one of the reasons why King James wanted a new translation because he wanted something that made the monarchy look a little higher. The the thing that's interesting is the early American settlers who were the Puritans, they brought with them the Geneva Bible. The King James Version actually didn't gain wide acceptance until probably 100 years after it came out. Now, we did have a few revisions over the years. For example, oh, there's the Bishop's Bible. I forgot about that right before the King James. And then in 17... 69, after being out for quite a while, they did have an update, the Blaney Revision, it's called, because that was the guy who headed the, the committee. Well, Mr. Blaney corrected spelling errors and updated it based on the latest Greek manuscripts, the Textus Receptus updates. And um, it was published in 1769. If you have a King James Bible today, it almost certainly is this 1769 version, not the 1611 version. The 1611 has, is difficult reading. The spelling is unusual. The printing is hard to read. In the Geneva Bible, it has the things where the, the S's look like gigantic F's. And so some of those things just change with time. When the King James Version first came out, there was objection to it because people said, we've got a good version here in the church. Why do you need a new one? You've changed some things. You can't change God's word. It was the same arguments back then that people sometimes have today.
Well, it was by that time because you had the invention of the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press. Now, whether the general public had the ability to read was a separate question, but as in as much as they did, yes, it became available. That's one of the things about Protestantism, is they wanted it to be available in their own language, whereas the Catholic Church had said it doesn't need to be that way. So now the King James Version remained pretty much the standard by, oh, the early 1700s. It stayed that way in English-speaking countries until probably the mid-1970s. At that point, there was just an explosion of new translations, and almost all of them were based largely from that Alexandrian line of text. Some people were much more interested on the original line of text. Some people were more interested in the method of translation. Um, I have a question for you guys. Would you have a problem if next week I came back and finished this? Because I have another half an hour easily, if not more. Okay. So I'll do a little, I'll, I'll do another 10 minutes or so here, but I do have to be able to get in and get my brain rewired to get ready for the service. The people who are really loyal to the King James Version, they pretty much fall on this continuum. If they're above the line, these are, these have some merit to them, okay? The historical argument that basically says the King James Version and its underlying Textus Receptus Greek line has been used powerfully by God for 400 years. Why would we want to mess with it? There's that argument. The next one says, well, the original manuscripts are a more reliable manuscript. And then the next one says, the translation of method that's more word for word is more reliable than a translation method that's more thought for thought. Above the line, this is what I would call preference for the King James Version. I can appreciate this, okay? You get below the line and you start to fall off the cliff, in my opinion. The Anglo-centric argument. I have heard some people who are strong, staunch advocates of only using the King James Version, I've heard some of them say the following. This is a direct quote from one named Sam Gipp. They asked him, Sam, if somebody doesn't speak English and they become a Christian believer, we would all say, praise God, but if they want God's word, do they have to learn to speak English? And Sam said, yes, otherwise they don't have God's word. And you can translate the Bible into their language as long as you translate it from the King James Version. That's what they would say. That's what's called the Anglo-centric argument. There's even, I heard somebody once in a debate that said, God only uses one language at a time. And I thought, really? Where does it say that in Scripture? He claimed that God's language was Hebrew at first, and then it was Latin, Greek, but starting in 1611, God declared it's now English. Oh, and in doing so, they used what's called the Peter Ruckman argument, in which he claimed that the manuscripts had become so unreliable that God needed to re-inspire his word divinely, and he chose 1611 and the King James translators to do that. That's called the Peter Ruckman argument. One of the problems with that is that in the preface to the King James Version, it isn't in the published King James Version today. You have to look it up on the web. In the original preface to it, they said, this translation is not perfect. 
it will need to be reviewed regularly based on the latest manuscript evidence and they said this should not be viewed as something that's divinely inspired we're normal man like anyone else we've done the best that we can and we believe this accurately portrays what the originals would have said but the King James translators relied on Latin a lot and there are certain passages in which and I'll be referring to one of them today in this sermon the famous passage where it talks about hope faith and love except originally it said charity and the King James translators went with charity because the Latin term was caritas and they wanted to capture that poetic beauty charity today is something that we think of almost somewhat negatively back then it was uh, it meant the Greek term agape love the highest form of self-sacrificing love the kind that Christ has for us remember there's different Greek words for love uh, storge familia eros you know, different forms of love between a, a family or the love you have for an institution someone says I love First Union Church that isn't the same thing as a husband and a wife that say I love my spouse it's not the same meaning so the Greek is more specific when the new translation just says love it really isn't all that specific so hope faith and love doesn't really carry it the way that hope faith and charity does as long as we understand what charity meant 400 years ago isn't necessarily the same application is today does this make sense yeah. now, English changes and so the translation should be updated and is there a danger in there for somebody to come in with an agenda and add a meaning of course that danger exists so it's it's proper to be cautious but to not resist it for all reasons if you've never run into a King James onlyist and I don't mean someone who prefers it I mean somebody who is just really really intense about it uh, you're probably very fortunate because they are difficult to deal with. My former church had a history of intense, high-powered, in-your-face King James onlyism. Most of those people were gone when I got there, and there were only a few of them holding on when I first got there, and they soon left. And that's why I was told that the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church is an unbeliever because he doesn't believe in the Bible because only the King James Version is the Bible, and since I don't believe that, I'm an unbeliever because we're saved by the power of the Word, and I don't have God's Word. That was the thinking, okay? That's the kind of just off-the-cliff Peter Ruckman argument. Peter Ruckman was a, a pastor and a guy who ran a Bible institute in his church in Pensacola, Florida, until fairly recently. I think he died about five years ago. I have a hunch he stood before God, and God said... Okay, Pete, yes, you're still saved, but what in the world were you doing? <laughs> if Peter was Cuban, he would have said, Lucy, you got some explaining to do. <laughs> well, I have a bunch of stuff to get ready for, so I'm going to just ask if uh, someone would close us in prayer, and I'll pick it up there next week if that's okay with you. So would someone close us in prayer?